This is an ABC podcast. A quick warning, this episode touches on the topic of suicide. Take care while listening. I did have a good childhood, but it was there were things such as uh, a lot of anger in my household, and sometimes that anger resulted in pain. And when you're a child, you don't know how to cope with stuff like that. You're not taught that, um, and you haven't learned all those coping mechanisms that adults can use. Hannah Byford is a 28-year-old nurse from Los Angeles in the United States, and for two decades of her life, she kept a secret. It was an escape. It was to protect myself and give me that outlet in a way that maintained my sanity and in a way that I could oftentimes feel love and I could feel acceptance and I could be who I am without worrying about being hurt. The place Hannah escaped to when things got too painful in the real world was an imagined life inside her head, an elaborate daydream. There's storylines, there's plots, there's characters, and we can go to at any time. So we can snap in and out of that daydream as easy as snapping your fingers, really. As a child, Hannah would spend hours a day in these intricate daydreams, building entire new worlds. We can create story arcs with characters, and we can use characters that we have found maybe in movies or books or TV, or we can make up our own characters and our own plots and our own twists and our own turns. And essentially, it is just one form of a coping mechanism that we use to basically escape from reality many of the times. Hannah herself was a character in these daydreams. And though she was quiet and shy in real life, daydream Hannah wasn't like that. These characters in my mind, they took on these personas that I probably would have wanted to exemplify. So I would have, um, my character would have been very outgoing, very social, very charismatic. And I found when I daydreamed that love, that acceptance, that sometimes I did not find in my reality. As far as coping mechanisms go, daydreaming might seem a benign one. But Hannah's extended daydreams eventually started impacting reality, her social life and even her mental health. I'm Sana Kadar, and today on All in the Mind, a special feature from producer James Bullen on the dark side of daydreams. Hey, James. Hey, Sana. Yes, for people like Hannah, daydreaming isn't simply letting your mind wander as you catch the bus or go for a run. People who live with maladaptive daydreaming, as it's described in the research literature, might live inside their head for five, six, ten hours a day. What's usually an innocent pastime becomes a debilitating disorder. This is something that, you know, when I had a therapist, they told me, you know, as a child, what you did made perfect sense. What your mind did protected you. But what ended up happening is that you learned this was a way to deal with reality and you didn't stop once you passed your childhood. And so into adulthood, you continue to use the daydreaming as a way to cope with the reality around you, with the sadness or with the loneliness or with the pain. And so it's something that's left over from my childhood. And it took many, many years, over 20 years, to finally be able to come out of that. More of Hannah's story later in the program. But first, what is maladaptive daydreaming and why does it happen? 
We define it as excessive daydreaming, which is so over the top and people become addicted to it that it actually impairs their lives. So it causes clinically significant distress and it impairs functioning like social relationships, the ability to concentrate or do your work or study, uh, things like that. Dr. Nirat Zofadudek is a clinical psychologist and senior researcher at Ben Gurion University in Israel. Imagine if you had this ability to daydream in a way that is so convincing, it feels lifelike and it's not an effort for you. And it's really like the easiest thing, really like an addiction. They just want to do it all the time because it's just so much fun. So the daydreams are very, very vivid. And the narratives are kind of like continuous. A lot of people describe it kind of like a soap opera. Nirit has been researching maladaptive daydreaming for about five years. It's just really very, very easy for them. It's not like most people would have to make a really big effort to daydream vividly. And we couldn't do it for long, right? Like, I don't have this ability. I couldn't sit for hours and daydream. It would be really tiring and boring. But for them, it's not boring at all. Nirit says this ability to daydream starts early on. Most of the maladaptive daydreamers that we talked to describe that they have had this ability ever since they were little. So even like when they were four or five, they were always called this daydreaming kid or someone who's always with this head in the clouds. So definitely it can start in childhood. It probably mostly starts in childhood. And while some maladaptive daydreamers report being born that way, for others the disorder is triggered, or at least strengthened, by trauma. Our studies show that definitely some of the maladaptive daydreamers do have a history of trauma, which also strengthens our thought that this is kind of like a dissociative disorder in certain ways, because uh, dissociation is very much related to trauma. In dissociative disorders, people may have issues with their sense of identity or self, they might experience disruptions in memory or perception. But we do know that not all maladaptive daydreamers have a history of trauma. So there are paths to maladaptive daydreaming that do not go through trauma. And we do know that people who have maladaptive daydreaming that does involve a history of trauma, some of them reported that trauma plays a part in their daydreams. So sometimes they have like fantasies of being rescued or they have fantasies where they are the perpetrators and they harm someone else. Women seem to have maladaptive daydreaming more than men, though Nirit says plenty of men do have it. And the daydreaming overlaps with other conditions too. Maladaptive daydreaming has strong relationships with OCD and OCD spectrum symptoms, which is hair pulling, skin picking, body dysmorphic symptoms, and a few other things. Indeed, one of the major shared mechanisms is the tendency for dissociative absorption. That's one of the things that we found. It's actually a tendency which is kind of normal if it's not too excessive, but a tendency to become immersed very deeply in something. It could be daydreaming, but it could also be a movie or a book or something else. And you become so immersed that you have your total attention focused on it, and it's so much that you kind of become oblivious to your surroundings. Another common OCD symptom 
intrusive thoughts, is also found in those with maladaptive daydreaming. People experience intrusive sounds or images or thoughts as intrusive. They experience them as something which is not wanted, that I wasn't the one who initiated this thought or this image. It just popped into my head. I can't control it. So that's something that's very much uh, shared between these disorders. So that's one additional mechanism. And another additional mechanism which we found was really body-related alterations of consciousness and symptoms. So like if you have body dysmorphic symptoms, like you feel that one part of your body really bad, really not like you want it to be or you don't feel connected to it, that's something that's uh, really prevalent in maladaptive daydreaming and is very much related to OCD. This might sound similar to something like schizophrenia or psychosis, but Nirit says the disorders are very different. Most maladaptive daydreamers are very well aware of the difference between reality and daydreaming. At the end of the day, they do know what happened for real and what didn't happen. Also, usually people who have hallucinations, but but usually what really differentiates between the abnormal and the normal manifestations of like hearing voices, things like that, is really your reaction. So if it's frightening, if it causes negative emotion... It's very different from maladaptive daydreaming because these people enjoy this condition. They want to go into their fantasies. They try not to because they realize they're addicted and it's a problem for them, but they enjoy it. So it's very different from psychosis. You're listening to All in the Mind with me, James Bullen. And today on the program, when daydreams begin to cause real-life harm. Some people who live with a condition termed maladaptive daydreaming spend hours each day inside their own head, damaging their social life, their relationships and their career. But lengthy daydreaming isn't always a bad thing, or at least it doesn't start out that way. Here's maladaptive daydreaming researcher Dr Nirit Sofadudek. In young ages, it's not necessarily impairing yet, and it's not necessarily associated with shame and embarrassment yet. And it becomes more of a problem the more you grow up and you have to form social relationships and you have to set life goals for yourself and go out there and meet people and do all these things that suddenly you find very hard to do. And also you become more and more aware and cognizant of the fact that you're the only one doing this, or at least that's what it seems like. So it becomes more of a disorder the more you grow up. That's something 28-year-old Hannah Byford noticed in her own daydreaming. It started out as a way of protecting her from a difficult home life. I think I kind of always knew I was different. And I think that's one of the things with maladaptive daydreamers, especially for myself, is that there's a lot of shame involved with it. So you don't come forward with it. And so you think for a very long time that you're the only one who has this and that you're alone. So for me, I always thought I was the only one there. And so I had a very... I guess I wouldn't say lonely childhood, but I was always more to myself. I didn't have those relationships, even in high school, you know, romantic relationships. And even into college, I didn't have that as well. And I saw people around me who were able to develop those relationships, who were able to form friendships more easily than I was, who was able to go out and have that social life, whereby my social life was in my mind and it was behind a closed door. 
Where do you think that feeling of shame comes from? I think there's many reasons for the shame. One, I think mental health many times is there's a stigma around saying that, you know, you have this daydreaming or you have anxiety or you have depression. And it's very scary to come out and say, hey, I have this because you are afraid that people are going to judge you. I mean, saying that you imagine yourself as a character in The Lord of the Rings, as a hobbit, you know, how are people going to actually view that? And so sometimes you feel that it's just safer if you keep to your dreams and you don't tell anybody about it because you don't think that anybody would ever understand. And so the the shame is there and there is a little bit of guilt as well. Sometimes when I look back on my life and I think about over 20 years of my life that you know I have daydreamed, like the guilt is there about, well, how many days, how many weeks, how many years have I lost? A lot of people tell us they can't tell anyone. They feel like their inner life is a secret. It's very secretive because they feel ashamed and they say, okay, no one else does this. They're going to think I'm weird. No one will understand me. And so they just feel really alone. At the height of my daydreaming, I would daydream probably six, seven hours a day. With daydreaming, it's the first thing you want to do, and it's the last thing you want to do before you go to bed. So you can literally daydream while you're um, sitting on a subway or you're you know, sitting in a cafe and you look like you're drinking coffee, but you're staring out the window and dreaming. So it was probably over six hours a day, six, seven hours a day. And I'm curious as well for people who are trying to understand how it works, Is it like you're watching a film or is it more that you're living and acting in the world when you're in these daydreams? It is as though you are actually living in it. So you see everything, you hear everything, you talk everything. It is literally as though you are going from this world and you're going into another and you're living in that world. When I daydreamed, everything around me disappeared in terms of I didn't hear sirens, I didn't hear noises around me. Now, granted, if somebody knocked on my door, I could snap out of this other world and come back into, quote unquote, this one. But it's an immersive experience and there's really no describing it. It's really something you experience. And it's as though all those characters in that world are real and they are your friends and they are the ones who love you and you love them. And it is very difficult to explain, but all I can tell you is that there are worlds upon worlds that I daydreamed in. I can't even describe how many there are because they're too numerous to count. When I daydreamed, it was a necessity. If I didn't daydream, then I could become very irritable. It was the sole focus because literally all around me were triggers. And these triggers were in the form of music, TV, movies, things people said, events in my life, such as if something made me very upset, then I wanted to let out those feelings. So I would want to have a daydream about me being very courageous and strong and, you know, getting out there. And it's an impulse, but it's also a a necessity because, as I said, I did not have the 
coping mechanisms there to deal with my reality. So in many senses, it's the only way I could, even into adulthood, until I could learn that. So it's very difficult to explain. Well, we know that the people who have it do it for a lot of hours each day. So in one of my studies, we had four and a half hours on average each day. But in a different study, it was up to eight hours a day. It's definitely time consuming. No question about it. And they describe it like, you know, it's so interesting to be inside this dream world. And then the real life seems so gray and boring. So it's really difficult to come back to reality. It's so much more interesting to stay in the dream world. You know, some of them just have this urge, like you have an itch that you have to scratch. And this itch could last for like two hours at a time. Hannah would schedule in her daydreaming around her study or work. I would always prioritize my dreams and I would carve out time in my day to do it. So if I knew that I had classes, say, from 9 to 12, then I knew that I would get home. It would take me about 30 minutes to get home. That would be 1230s. And then I had something at 3 o'clock, but I could daydream from 1230 to 3 o'clock. It was very interesting, but for sure, the people and the characters in your mind were always prioritized over the people in your reality. I think this idea is a really important point that I've heard from other people living with maladaptive daydreaming. It's not something you can really turn off or ignore. And for Hannah, this went on for years, losing hours of every day to her dreams. Until, in her early 20s, she decided something had to change. One day I decided I had enough and I ended up Googling, just putting in some some symptoms, you know, some signs and symptoms that I had, you know, c- certain keywords. And the first thing that came up was this research about maladaptive daydreaming. And when I read about the maladaptive daydreaming for the first time, it was as though a huge door swung open for me. And the feeling of finally having a name to call what this was, to finally have something, a a name, a recognition to it, and to have someone believe me, that experience is not an experience that I think many people have, but it happens to maladaptive daydreamers. And for me, that's what happened. And when I was able to have that knowledge of this is something that others have, that's when I knew I needed to get help. And I needed to open that Pandora's box, as I like to call it, into my childhood, into what happened to me, um, and really dig into it and see why is everything driving into this dreaming and what is it that I can do about it. Hannah found online forums with people sharing their own experiences with the disorder. There are thousands of us out there who have this. And there are thousands of people who say, oh my gosh, I thought I was alone. And for so long, I didn't think I could, you know, say this. And that there would be people who would understand what it felt to literally daydream your life away every single day. It was at that point she sought out a therapist. Therapy was very interesting. I've actually never really even told my family too much about the therapy. But yes, uh, for two years when I was in New York City, I saw a therapist. So this was actually while I was going to grad school. While I was there going through the therapy and digging through my past, I actually, for many reasons, not just the daydreaming and not my past, but I actually 
spiraled into depression and had anxiety. And about two months before I was even set to graduate with my uh, graduate degree from NYU, I was planning on taking my life. And so I wanted to end my life. I, I wanted to give up. I didn't want to go on. Fortunately, I moved back in with, you know, my supporting family. I was able to mentally recuperate and recover, but that time in my therapy taught me a lot of things about what had happened to me as a child. And it was very cathartic in many ways looking back now, but it did take me to a very dark place. It also took her to a place where she could begin to control her daydreaming. I started identifying my triggers. That's number one. So if my triggers were that I daydreamed in my bed, then I would cut the amount of time that I spent in my bed down. If my triggers were certain types of movies, then I would actually not watch those movies. Instead of watching Lord of the Rings or Star Wars, or I would watch Seinfeld or The Office, you know, because those weren't triggers for me. I identified my triggers and then I started slowly replacing them with other things. Another thing I did was I went outdoors. I started hiking. I started getting out in nature. I started my horseback riding again. I started playing my music again, my cello. And so I started replacing my daydreams with things that were tangible in the reality. And that could take me away and still allow me to work through those feelings that came up in the reality, but in a more healthy and in a more productive manner. Hannah found what worked for her, and that's good because the research into treating maladaptive daydreaming is just starting out. One of Dr Niritso Fadudek's colleagues has looked into a few forms of treatment in a paper that is yet to be published. He found that both mindfulness helped and tracking your daydreaming behaviour also helped. Tracking is an intervention which is well known in CBT therapy, cognitive behavioural therapy, in which you, you look at the behavior daily and you look at triggers, how you felt before, how you felt after, what could be associated with it, maybe even track your sleep or other things, you know, what I did today, who I met today, things that could be associated with it. But even just tracking the behavior itself, how many hours each day, when did I start, when did I finish, that alone could help. And we also found that spontaneously in, in some of our daily studies, that participants after the study told us that just merely participating in the study caused them to notice when they do this and when they stop and how much hours each day and it helped them. Some people have just told this to us spontaneously after the studies. So that and mindfulness techniques could be helpful for some people. But again, this is very preliminary. There's also been some small amount of evidence that selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, may help people with maladaptive daydreaming. These drugs are usually used to treat depression. But again, the study which made that finding was very small. Because maladaptive daydreaming is kind of similar to OCD in some ways, that some therapy from OCD could be helpful. Also, maladaptive daydreaming is a behavioural addiction. So techniques focusing on on addictions, on treating habits, that's also another field that could help in developing useful interventions. But this field is really just starting out, so we, we really can't say 
For sure. We don't yet have a really good protocol or treatment of choice for maladaptive daydreaming. We need a lot more awareness for that. We need more clinicians and more researchers to explore this field. Part of the problem is establishing just how common the condition is. We have two prevalent studies really happening right now. We don't yet have data published on prevalence. From what I saw from the data so far, it varies between countries. We have international data, and it seems to vary between countries. But it's definitely not less prevalent than some of the other disorders in the DSM. The rare ones like DID, dissociative identity disorder, so it's more prevalent than that. Nirit and her research team want to see maladaptive daydreaming listed in the next Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM. People repeatedly tell us, oh my God, when I found out this thing had a name and I'm not the only one doing this, I was overjoyed. I was so relieved. I can't believe all these years I thought I was alone, I was the only one, and suddenly finding out that this has a name, that there are other people doing it, and finding comfort in support groups on the internet, and, you know, being able to communicate to my clinician, bring him published papers and say, look, look at this, this is what I have. Because clinicians have been diagnosing it either as ADHD or OCD or, you know, saying, okay, you're depressed and this is just like a secondary symptom that doesn't have any real meaning or doesn't have to be addressed in and of itself. And people have been feeling like they have not been getting the the correct treatment for them. So definitely we think this is really important to have in the DSM. Getting something into the DSM is a complex process. It has to have a sizable body of research behind it, be well distinguished from other disorders, and have symptoms severe enough to cause impairment or distress. That work on maladaptive daydreaming is ongoing. But it's something Hannah is keen on too, and she's eager to build the profile of the disorder in other ways. It's something that hasn't been recognised, and it's one of the things that, as having had maladaptive daydreaming, something that I want to change, and something that other people want to change. So I'm trying to bring advocacy and awareness to this mental health disorder. And one of the ways that I'm doing that is through the development of the International Society for Maladaptive Daydreaming, so ISMD. Really, the goal of the society is to merge research innovation, advocacy and awareness and merge it all into one and support it that way. And to really be able to give a global face to maladaptive daydreaming and to be able to maybe perhaps give people around this world an organization that can represent them and who recognizes that they do exist and that they are not alone in this world. These days, Hannah works as a nurse at the University of California, Los Angeles. She says the shift in her life since getting her daydreaming under control is remarkable. The change is really like night and day, honestly. Now, I will say that the maladaptive daydreaming doesn't always go away 100%. For me, there's always that trigger. There's always, like, going to be the new Star Wars movie that comes out or something like that that might trigger me. But 
in terms of building friendships, in terms of building relationships, in terms of wanting to move forward and have a romantic relationship, and in terms of being able to move ahead professionally and in my career, that has really taken leaps and bounds. You know, I have found out that Yes, my daydreams were always a source of security because I always knew what was going to happen. But sometimes what I found out is reality is very surprising and it can be surprising in many, many good ways. And that's something that I'm starting to learn about and starting to experience more of is that joy and that happiness and the surprises. And I think that, yes, I may have daydreamed for years and years, but I'm looking forward to experiencing what this world has for the decades to come. That's Hannah Byford. And you also heard from clinical psychologist Dr. Niran Sofer Dudek. That's all in the mind for this week. This story was produced and presented by James Bullen. Our sound engineer is Jerome Commissari. And I'm Sana Kadar. Thank you for listening. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.